Good evening, Donahoe Dooling here. For some years now I have been presenting radio documentaries dealing with life as it was lived in the rich limestone belt between Mallow, Donnerill and Charleville, that is, in North Cork. We have dealt with such as Canon Sheehan, the St. Ledger family and Edmund Spencer's days at Kilcolman. And throughout these programmes, one man has figured prominently, our subject for this evening's documentary. This is a man as rich in memory and thought as the land on which he has worked for many years, a man who has loved his native countryside, who has savoured its traditions and cultivated its customs and pastimes. We salute a generation, the generation which followed O'Connell, which loved Parnell, and the few survivors of which have seen a dream realised. For they have learned to live with victory, not to die for it, and I often think that the latter is more difficult than the former. So then, to these few octogenarians and nonagenarians who are happily still with us, we dedicate tonight's unedited, unscripted programme, which I have called Ninety Years a Corkman. John Walsh of Donorail recalls for us the vivid past. to school, first to the convent, to the presentation convent, then the nuns, then to the Christian brothers. And I went for a bit in the national school to Balabonier when Mr. Pat Healy was teaching there. He was a great teacher. Then I came back again to the brothers after a time. These were fairly hard times around here, weren't they? Ah, they were indeed. We had to work hard when we were young fit. Very hard. I mean, that time I had to work from six o'clock in the morning till six o'clock in the evening. When you were going to school, you used to help out at home? Oh, I used. I'd be out in the morning looking after the sheep at the time of the lambing season. Often I'd find two or three dead lambs, maybe after a bad night's rain, find them out dead in the field. I used to have to be doing that. And, uh, <coughs> And the other little jobs we used to have to do, you know, and coming home, we'd not, there was no or if that river below was dry. In the evening after coming back from school, we often had to draw water with a donkey and car. All <coughs> after a day away in school? After being a day away in school. That's when we were young. The landlords uh, were very prominent around here that time, weren't oh, they? Oh, they were. They were, but they were, but... Some of my ancestors, some of my mother's ancestors, they own Kerkerover, where Evans are living now. And the first parish priest of Donnerail was a Father Tyke Daly. And he, one of his guarantors was Godfrey Daly of Kerker. And also O'Keefe of Park. The O'Keefe's lived at Park, where uh, Cogans are living now. Narkin's got that from the St. Ledger's. And of course, uh, old Admiral Evans got it. Uh, Got it. <coughs> so not from the dailies. Dailies were scattered then. Some went up to Galway. They were scattered around. And my granduncles were down 
they were down in a place called, uh, they came from a place called Prunterson, down in the county Limerick, just be, uh, near Charleville. And they got this farm here. Their brother was, was curious here at the time in Donnerland, so I suppose to see, got him to come there. Well then, my grandmother was uh, going to be evicted out of her farm. Her husband died, and she had uh, three daughters and a son. And she had uh, her, her husband was married to her. She was the second wife. And at any rate, he went wild and ran into arrears of rent with Harrison of Castle Harrison, he was the landlord of it. So my two granduncles here, her brothers, my grandmother's brothers, they went down with John Harold Barry of Balavonier. He was a cousin of Harrison's, and they agreed that they'd become uh, responsible for the rent and everything like that. And <coughs> that must it so, but there was a neighbor down there. He, met Harrison one day and he told told him, do you know what I heard, sir, he said? The dailies are coming down from Donnerail with a bunch of men and they're going to clear the farm and let you go whistle for your rent. So <laughs> uh, what would you advise me to do? Old Harrison said to him. I don't know, he said, well, do you know what, sir? He said, I'll take it over myself. And he did. So when Mr. John Harold Barry and the, my granduncles went down. They found out that he had given away the place. I heard up for a fact that John Harold Barry harshed him <laughs> for doing it. He was a hot-tempered man too. There was great land league agitation, was there? Around oh, here? There, there was. I remember they stopped the horns one time. Uh, they were to meet somewhere around there, and they had to go out the mountain. They couldn't hunt around at all. They had to go out the mountain. And then, I suppose, this place suffered the time of the famine. I'm sure it did. Uh, uh, it, uh, it did, of course, suffered the same as uh, nearly every pla place around. There were a lot of people died with, the, with the, that uh, disease, you know. They got some kind of a disease from the famine, and a lot of them died. Did you tell me one time, too, that um, only your ancestors had some association with Daniel O'Connell. Oh, my granduncle was a great friend of his, uh, Father James Daly. He was a particular friend of, of, of O'Connell's. And when O'Connell was, was, was agitating for the repeal of the Union, you know, he went around the country holding meetings in every town and village. And uh, he came to Donnerell. That was the time that my granduncle taught Colonel Hill if he read the right act, he'd read an act over from over him that he wouldn't quickly come from under. So they were good. They were, he was a great friend of O'Connell's. Uh, William Burke, had he some connection with you? Oh, William Burke. William Burke, I knew the whole family after. William Burke, I think the last of, the last of, of, the, of them Burks he lived in, Butterman. Ned Burke was his name. They were originally from Lispelly here, down there near, near uh, <coughs> up to the north of where Herley is, you know, that mm. pub that's yes. there on the side of the road. I lived up there a bit. Up, uh, the, the, the passage was up in the back of a wide double ditch. 
What's the William Buck <coughs> did? William Buck. Uh, oh, he went back to well, they were they'd be all they'd be all transported. They'd be all uh, probably uh, hanged. All the Donnerill men at that time. Uh, 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 the, the courts uh, started on a Saturday, and by night time there was two or three of them convicted and uh, condemned to death, I think. So at any rate, the only thing to be done was they got the best horse they could find in Cork for William Burke. He was uh, mixed up in them too, but he wasn't any of the... He wasn't before the court. So he got on the horse and rode back to Derry Nairn, all the ways. Got back there on Sunday morning, just as, as, as Dan O'Connell was coming home from first mass and told his story to him. So by Joe O'Connell got ready, and anyway, he drove through the night, the carriage and pier, to the long distance from Derry Nairn to Cork, with the driver carriage and pier. So he got in, he didn't wait to, to eat his breakfast even when he got into Cork. He got a bowl of milk and a loaf of bread and went into court and started eating it in court. And he was listening to the old lost fellas perjuring themselves. And he, he, he practically made him admit perjury. And uh, when a, some fellow would come out with some statement, you know, some of the the prosecutor, I forget who this he was at the time, though, sure, I know, know his name well. Uh, O'Doherty, was it? No, was it O'Doherty? No. I can't remember his name. My own memory is not as good as it was, you know. <laughs> but any rate, when he'd hear that expression, he said, That's not law! That's not law! Yeah, I don't remember him anything. By Joe, he got someone, he got him off. Got some of the, the, those good some of those men often those, those that were convicted on the Saturday were all transported out to Botany Bay. Any connection of your family in that? Well, they were my my wife's family. They were connected. Arthur O'Leary was connected with my wife's family. Uh, he lived up here above in Russia. He must be a pretty big farmer. His, his rent was about 400 a year, I think, at the time, I remember reading it somewhere. And uh, he was transported. And when he was coming home, the poor man, he died in the voyage home. That's what there was a, a descendant of his lived down at Carrigina after, and he was very bitter. He was very, very bitter against those type against the, 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 the so-called aristocrats and all those, you know. He was very bitter against them, owing to that fact. That he, was, he was a great, I think he was a great grandfather to him. Which of the landlords around here was least liked? Well, uh, Any of them weren't very popular, I suppose. Any of them weren't very popular, but mind you, they, they, they weren't so tyrannical here on entirely. The, the people were fairly well organised. <coughs> the people were fairly organised. The court of Saint Ledgers were a very bad type, you know, and they were they 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 the most of the a lot of the pe fellas around that got those big houses. They were uh, after being no the Nagels the Nagels that the Nagel Mountains are called after. They were related to the Harold Barrys. 
they were they 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 owned a big property and they were all done out of it and still I knew one of them who was a resident magistrate in the north of Ireland and he was a a a a, a great um, royalist mm-hmm. and they were dispossessed of a lot of a lot of property. The same ledgers got it, I, I think, and they did, they gave it then to some of their followers again, you know. This, the first Saint Ledger got an awful lot of land around here, and he was giving it to his followers from time to time. The hills, no, and, and the lows and them. He gave it to them. They were uh, Cromwellians also. They're nearly all gone now, aren't they? They're nearly all gone now. The craze are gone. The stores are gone. And, uh, yes, the craze and the stores, they were the principal mm-hmm. landlords around here. What agitations were going when you were going to school? What was happening at the time in the country? Oh, the, 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 the land league there, you know, the land league. When I was going to school, my father was secretary of the local branch of the land league. Uh, he was going for the church one time, and he was fairly well educated, you know. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, he was secretary of the land league. And uh, first they were ma- making their defences as well as they could, you know, organising, organising to prevent their uh, means or cattle being seized and all this kind of thing for rent. I was an old fellow in Mala. He was, a, he was a bailiff, Boland was his name. I remember when we were going to school to see that old fellow driving out in a sidecar from Mallow, going around, going to see somewhere. Old Boland was his name. Did they ever hold agitation meetings in your house when you were young? Do you remember committees or anything? Ah, uh, no, but I remember there was meetings there in the time of the IRA. Yeah. There were meetings there. That time, Sean, Sean Moylan held a meeting there one night in, well, in, in, in the barn. We had a big barn. He held a meeting there one night. I happened to have be, be up in Dublin at the time. There was some convention on there. And I was a delegate up there, up to Dublin. And uh, Sean Moylan held, held a meeting there. And it was, I was in it. I was. I was in the, in, the, in the club here, you know, the Sinn Féin club. Was there much black and tan activity around here? There wasn't so much black and tan activity around here at all, mind you. It was all more of it around Mala and back to the west. Mm-hmm. There wasn't so much of it around here at all. I remember the, lo- the local sergeant at the time, he hated to have anything happen to bring a man you know, to bring on the black and tans. I think that was his real meaning in it. He was, um, he, he, my father-in-law was a t- t- very fiery. Uh, your, your father knew him all right. And uh, he, he was very uh, in, in the club too. And he, he was dead down on him. He was going to the house now and again and everything. But the day the, the, the soldier was shot, shot over near Blue Cross, <coughs> when peace was 
the 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 what the treaty treaty was on practically at the time. Just to be on on Monday, on the Monday. This was on a Sunday evening. They were walking down the new lane, they shot him. And it was out of my father in Lasfield. The shots were fired. So I remember I was I was an auctioneer at the time and I was having an auction for um, Colonel Cray behind in Rasa. And we saw the lorries going in towards Buttervent and didn't take any notice of them. But we had just the auction finished and we were coming out at the gate and they pulled the lorry pulled up. So I went out to them, speak to him. And they asked me, where was my father-in-law? Well, he's just inside there, I said, inside the gate with the crowd, there was a big crowd there. What do you want him for? No, about the shooting. I said, hey, he knows no more about that shooting than you do. Or if he did, he'd have stopped it, I said. Well, they, they arrested him anyhow. And I came over, and I went over, I told his brother, and we were driving up there to see him. We were carrying up some refreshment. And we met a lorry coming down the passage from the camp. And we got there was one of the local policemen in it. Oh, you sure was going back to see, we're taking him home again. <laughs> so that was that. I suppose you remember Kenan Sheehan well. Oh, Lord, I do, I do. I remember Kenan Sheehan very well, of course. I knew Father Ashlyn, you know, people were there before him. And, uh, How did you meet Kenan Sheehan first? As I was a young fella, and I wait a while now. First time I met him was... Um, My mother was was ill, very ill, and died too. And so I met him first, coming visiting, out to the house. And so I first met him. But a uh, uh, marvelous. Well, my wife, my my wife and, and her sister and every youngsters going to school. He was somewhere related to their mother, mind you. Sheehan was her name too. There was somewhere and he had a great, great regard for him. He'd take him in often and give him little things and I was looking afterwards over to know if there were any souvenir left and there wasn't. Any souvenir. He'd give him pictures or some various things from time to time. But there, there was nothing left over. Were you impressed by him? I was, of course. Anyone would be impressed by him. My God, his sermons, his sermons were, 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 were marvellous altogether, and the simplest person could understand them, you know. You could hold listening to him now the coldest winter's morning that ever came, you'd, you'd be enthralled listening to him. Really would. You wouldn't say he was a proud man? I would not, though the... the, the <laughs> He made the remark himself one time, they say I'm a proud, they have a proud walk. <laughs> well, he used to walk very straight, very straight, and he always wore the tall hat. I would know he wasn't a proud man at all, though a stranger may think he was, but he was not indeed a proud man by any means. 
And I never forget any how long as I live, and which I suppose won't be too long now. The last sermon he gave us, when he went up in the pulpit to bid us goodbye, and we knew he was dying too at the time, and he knew it himself that he was dying, but it would make the stones cry to listen to him. And his last goodbye. Well, I was very proud to be <coughs> laying the reed on his 50th anniversary of his death. Anyhow. Would you say he was a national man? He was. He was a national man and a great Irishman. A great Irishman. Like I, I, when I'd hear him often criticised, I'd say he knows more about Irish character than any one of you do. And he was your Indian, yes, nearly. No. <coughs> he was a great a good Irishman. And uh, himself and William O'Brien, of course, were, 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 they, were, they were born in the same town, in the Baladahin in Malawa. And William O'Brien used to come out when he, when he got his death sickness. Well, there'd be no... He'd come out a couple of times a week anyway to see him. He drove out in a carriage and pair. And uh, of course, poor Willem, when he got married, he hadn't any money. He was only a member of parliament. And they were badly paid at that time. But his wife was a rich woman. She was a Russian, I think. So she got, she got. All her property was confiscated after. She had to be su supported in the Finnish, I think, by old government here. If I can change the subject now, was there a great social life when you were young? Well, I tell you, the social life was that time. Visiting. Visiting from host to host, you see. Uh, we'd go visit here. Neighbours and friends would be visiting. There was no such thing then as films or anything like that. And there wasn't much dancing either going on at the time. A really little of it, but uh, social. You'd have a dance at home, or, or, or have a dance in the private house, you know, at home, your friends. Yeah, oh, yeah, there, was, there was plenty visiting that time. There was more, a lot of more social life than there is now. It isn't a lake. Mr. Welch, have you ever seen the modern dancing? Uh, I was never in a hall where it was carried on, bonnet to see it in the films, and I hate it. <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> I don't know what's in it. Sure, no long ago, you know, when we'd be dancing, well, you'd have your arm around the girl, you see, and you'd be wheeling. No, they're simply jumping up and down in front of each other. I don't see what pleasure they can get out of it at all. We used to love to be whirling the girls around in my young days. <laughs> Tell me, can you remember any of the songs that were popular when you were young? Any old songs? I, should, I, hear, I, I hear a share of them now, even. I hear a share of them now. Burning on the Moor was one of the songs I used to hear. It is at the thrashings. We'd hear all those old songs, you know, long ago. Of course, the thrashings are gone now, too. They're gone, too, now. Uh, the old song. My father had a few very good old songs. In fact, I used to sing them now and again myself. There's one of them about the Irish Brigade in, in France. And the other was about, 
uh, 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 at home here, about the green flag, two very good sons. We used to sing them. Of course, patriotism and nationalism <coughs> were very much in the air. Oh, ah, they were. Oh, they were at that time. Pl plenty of, 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 of nationalism at that time. God, they were, they were. Had to have it, you know. By the way, do you remember Parnell? I do. I do remember Parnell. I do when he came. I remember when he came, he, before he gave up altogether, you know, he visited, uh, the, he came down south here. And I remember at Mallow, he used to stop at the stations and speak. And uh, he, he, he used to use a phrase, you know, don't, don't throw me to the English homes unless you get my phrase. Well, I, uh, United Ireland used to publish a, a pictorial supplement that time. And I remember I was up at Pernell's place there some years ago, and there's a museum there, and, and they have all those pictures. But I saw this picture there. Here was Pernell depicted with an axe in his hand and a, a hounds around him. And he said, <coughs> Don't throw me to the English hounds. Unless, uh, he said not once but thrice, don't throw me to the English hounds unless you get my price. He went around and he, he, he stumped the country around here. And of course, Parnell was a great loss at that time. It, probably if he lived, we wouldn't have the, the rising at all because we'd have probably got, he'd have probably got, um, he'd have got home rule, I'm sure, anyway. Would you, say, would you say that you've had a happy life? I had, yes. I had a very happy life. No doubt about it. And I remember, well, I was asked a question one time, a, a young fella, too. And there was one of the priests with him, some more. It was a kind of a social meeting we had. And I was asked, he, 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 this young chap said to me, what do you attribute your long life to? Well, said I, not to worry about things. Take things as they come, because worrying will do you no good. You can't prevent them by worrying. You can't remedy them by worrying. So why worry? That's why I have such a happy life, I said, and why I live so long. I never worried. I took things as they came, mind you. The ups and the downs, took them all and as they came. And that's what I, I told them I attributed my long life to. As the Mosso Crehan once said, Ni ek for all the they shall not see our kind again. In that programme, you heard John Walsh of Lahan reminisce of his 90 years in North Cork. These were, in fact, but a few of his memories, for before I left Donnerill in the autumn coloured dusk, John walked out with me outside his farmhouse door and pointing to the hazy outlines of the Bellahora Hills, he recollected that Spencer had referred to the highest peak as Old Mole. He reminded me that Kilcolman, Spencer's old home, lay not too far away either, a ruin facing the rushy lake. He talked of Spencer's trouts and pikes, and agreed, indeed, that those trouts and pikes, as Spencer put it, all others do excel. In fact, almost before we knew it, we could have launched into another programme, but for now it was enough. Time past had woven its immortal spell into time present for 90 years of 
John Walsh. That program, 90 Years a Cockman, was produced by Donahoe Dooling.